0: Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists.
2: Hi, this is J. Michael Straczynski, AKA Joe Straczynski, uh, writer for Captain America, Spider-Man, Babylon 5, the new novel out last year called Together We Will Go, new novel coming out soon called The Glass Box. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melodic and Eddie Wilson. Welcome,
1: everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the in zoom. Zoom string. We got, we got a lot of strings. It's a computer, you know, it's a series of tubes. Fibers. We are joined with comic book legend and screenwriting legend and everything legend, J. Michael Straczynski. He's responsible for so much stuff in the realm of comics, but and currently... Now- Yes, he he's known as a guy who's been heavily involved with a guy wearing red and blue and he's switching over to another guy wearing red and blue. And, from, from, well, and there's the white in the lenses for Spidey, yeah. Oh. Wow, yeah. Stays. I like that. Uh, but anyway. you know, uh,
2: Big, Big, Bigfoot was also a legend.
1: You stop that. He is a human being. Let's not give it. He really is. Yeah. The Sam Squatches, you know. No, not... I'm talking about Joe. He's
2: a tall man. Joe, how tall are you? J. J. Michael Sam Squatch um i'm i'm six foot four see told you
1: he have been sitting down he's really tall if Come you on. if you met jim shooter would it be like
2: godzilla versus king kong because he's a very uh, tall man i met i met jim i met jim shooter uh uh and and, and michael richardson from dark horse and think together we can actually bond into one being and take over the earth okay. so you
0: all see eye to eye excellent
1: when you all stand side by side, is it like the equivalent of recreating a cell phone reception signal? Uh, actually, yes. Cool, I like that. So, Joe, first off, how are you today? Just in general,
2: I, I'm 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 peachy keen. I could not be more keener. Super uh, duper. Um, yeah, I'm good. So, speaking of things that are good. We
1: are about a week removed from this recording on September 27th from your first issue of Captain America. First off, congratulations on that. Thank you. And I got to tell you, first off, I'm a longtime Captain America fan, but someone in this room that we're recording with is an even bigger Captain America fan. As big as Ken, because I've cosplayed the character somewhat. And uh, yeah, with other things,
0: Spider-Man, otherwise a lot of catching up to do, but this new run Again, congrats on getting this this new Captain America title a, a restart and a, and a retelling, I think. I mean, just reading it, as I think was required for us before we actually spoke to you, the way the way you go about it. So how did it come to what happened that you got this assignment?
2: Uh, I've been doing some work uh, with Marvel just here and there, uh, doing the occasional story for like the um, Thor anniversary issue for Marvel um, Age 1000. And um, working with Will Moss on a project that has yet to be announced, and uh, Alana was looking for someone new to step in on, on Cap, uh, the current writers were finishing up their run, and uh, basically said, you know, do you want to do it? And I said, absolutely, because it's always, Cap's always been a favorite character for me, and, and Steve Rogers has been a very important character as well. Um, whenever I, had, I, was, when I was writing Spider-Man, uh, Whenever I had a chance to slip Captain America into the storyline, I always took it <laughs> because it was just so much fun writing that character. So um, they came to me and said, what do you want to do? And we talked about it and they, they had to go lie down for a while. But then it passed and they said, go ahead.
0: And the rest is becoming history. That's excellent. Um, again, this and, uh, you know, there's so much Cap lore that's out there, different series and stories and so on. But from at least what I've what I've read before, this kind of takes it on a different perspective. Maybe I can let you, Joe, describe which way it's ah uh, it's being presented because it seems like it's part flashback and current versus you know growing up as that skinny little kid from Brooklyn.
2: Yeah, my my job, as I see it, uh, is to ask the question nobody's ever asked before. So with my Spider Man, the question was, you know, uh, did the spider get power from the radiation? Think to give to Peter, or did the spider already have the powers, trying to get it to Peter before the radiation killed it? But you ask a question that doesn't change anything, but illuminates it. So that suddenly it broadens the story because if the, if it's the latter case, and was trying to get him before the radiation killed it, that implies intent. And when you bring intent into the question, suddenly you have to ask, well, whose intent is that? Hmm. And from that, you know, one story. Spinning out, basically laid the foundation for the Spider Verse. So you always want to ask the question that somebody else has not asked before. And in the case of Cap, you know, whether well, it's in references to the times, you know, before he became Captain America, and all we've ever really seen of that is a couple quick scenes here and there, and you know, the 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 I can do this all day scene. But we really don't know anything about that, that period of time between when his uh, his mom passed away and left him essentially an orphan. Uh, at age 14, 15, <clears throat> when he became Captain America, you know, at age, at age 18, he was on his own, no relatives, you know, some friends, but he wanted to do it on his own. How did he survive? And what did he do? And, and what, and the, the, the problems that he would have to encounter, just trying to make money to get an apartment, you know, to survive, to get food, you know, it, to me, it, it resonates with the the problems we have now with the, the gig economy with so many young people have to deal with this. And secondarily, during that period of time in in, in New York, uh, the uh, before World War II started in earnest, the German American Boom, basically American Nazis, were um, a real force to be reckoned with. They were very big in New York and New Jersey. They had upposts op- in California and other places. And um, I thought, well, logically speaking, if they're literally down the street from, from Steve during a period where he's growing up. He would have encountered them he would have run into them it would have been his first exposure to that philosophy and and to into what, what a nazi is because they, they they had they wore uniforms nazi uniforms he did they marched down the streets they harassed store owners they had you know, rallies uh and thought, well let's pull those threads together and explore something that really no one's ever looked at before and, and certainly uh, there hasn't been a whole lot done a little bit here and there but not a whole lot on the american nazis uh who were doing their thing in the 30s uh we all tended to think that you know america was just 100 pro you know, a, you know anti-nazi until and the war started we all got in but no there were there were some people who were you know strong advocates for for those guys and uh, after when the war started they all kind of went and hid but and we didn't try to sort of shove it all under the carpet but no let's let's pull that out into the light and deal with this I know it's very, you know, you mentioned
1: that, especially when you look back at that time frame, like New York City, the Nazis, like, no, you know, filled Madison Square Garden for rallies. So, like, it's a real thing, and it's so frightening to realize that, you know.
2: Well, absolutely, and and I thought that a lot of corporations at that time were heavily in bed with the Nazis in terms of, you know, they, they needed supplies, resources. And you know, Ford Motor Company, General Motors, others at that time were really, you know, uh working with them. So we had, we had that whole "what's good for our business is good for America" thing, and that they're buying our products. Well, by golly, they're on our side. Um, so the whole culture of look the other way. This is all, what, they're, what they say they're doing is just propaganda, and there was this weird fanaticism that was rising. And uh, you know, had Pearl Harbor not happened, I think there would have been reason for America to try and stay out of the war. I mean, certainly there were voices of isolationism saying at that time, it's not our problem. Uh, And there were a lot of people actively supporting them. So it was a bad time for America, but eventually we figured it
1: out. So now when it comes to the whole storytelling technique in this Captain America series of the flashbacks, I also appreciate, you know, you say, you know, asking questions, you know, no one has asked. I love the idea that, you know, we look back at Captain America, like, we see his group of friends too, you know, during this time frame, and it's something that's not really reflected upon with that. Like, we know who Captain America is when he's a fully grown, you know, completely modified human being, but we really don't look back to this time frame. And I love that you're doing this for the character.
2: Thank you, and yeah, it, it, we are developing a, a, a surrounding cast, uh, the guy who was the landlord, um, for. For steve at the time his mom passed away and he had to be evicted which parallels the current story of um guys who were about to be evicted from the house steve is kind li- the americans living in now and he buys the building to stop that from happening because he he remembers what that was like when he got evicted from the same building yeah so there's that 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 counterpoint that parallel um we have arnie, arnie you know arnie in this story and we build out you know the 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 characters that, that surround him, but we keep him still pretty much on his own because he was a very resilient guy, very independent guy, um, you know, living in abandoned houses. He was a squatter, yeah. You know? uh, and he, we have to bear in mind too that it wasn't just that he was a kid; it was that he was a sickly kid. Uh, he was a, he was thin. Uh, he was small for his age, uh, and over the course of the six issue arc, we will get more into what that, what that's like and and. The, uh the illnesses that he had and and because he's now outside in the world having to earn money often under not the best circumstances he begins getting sicker he begins getting more worn down by all this and, and getting in more and more trouble and where we leave him is a place where you understand that you know if if the um uh super soldier serum hadn't come along he probably wouldn't have lasted
1: much longer and one of the things a storytelling decision that you made in this you know the very first issue alone that Made me smile because it shows this is what Captain America is. The whole, you know, talking to Tony saying, hey, I need money for, you know, something. I need a small I need a loan from you. And just the idea, you know, Tony think, oh, it's going to be for this multi-billion dollar thing like, you know, this or that. or It's going to be a jet. Nah, I'm going to buy a little apartment building and be a landlord. It's like the most adorably humble thing that he could do. And he's just doing it to help out other people. And that alone shows, you know this character is in the right hands. And I love knowing that.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I I mean, he isn't the kind of guy who just sit by and let everyone else be booted out the door. He can afford, obviously, to go somewhere else, but not everyone else can. And I think that at some point, you have to decide as a general rule of thumb, are you going to do the right thing or are you going to do the wrong thing? And if you make a a decision to, generally speaking, I'm always going to do the right thing, and it makes life a lot easier. You don't have to debate, you don't have to worry or fret about it. You realize that, you know, okay, here's a right and the wrong. It's not about self-convenience or or what's good for me, just do what's right. And he tends to do what's right. And uh what's been interesting is seeing how many people sort of were uh looking at Cap quote becoming a landlord uh as, as if it was some kind of capitalistic drive to, to to make a lot of money he's not doing it for that purpose he's doing it to save those around him and for the first several issues we see him personally you know fixing up the place working on on the building uh trying to make it nice for everyone uh so it's yeah he does he does the right thing because it's the right thing and, and beyond that what what do you have to debate
0: yeah and so like you said it's a six issue arc and i i assume it's all unless they're you know each issue has is different title but it starts off by saying you know beginnings um, but it looks like we're running, um, two tracks as it were, two storylines, one with the current cap, not only helping with the building project, but also something sinister developing nexus or otherwise. Uh, and then the, uh, kind of a shocker at the end in, um, younger cap getting the sandwich and, and who is it from?
2: Yeah, uh, I want to use the two timelines to counterpoint each other in various ways. And th- those two stories are actually connected in a way that will start to spin out slowly over the course of, of, of the storyline. Um, and I do want to play with the idea that there is a, a nexus coming, there is, there is a change coming, and that there are those who can step up and be there and f- to help that change happen, uh, who are going to be taken out by those on the bad side of the current contemporary Cap story. Um, it's always struck me that whenever you hear about, you know, a, a leader or a person being assassinated, nine times out of ten, it seems it's always someone trying to change things for the better. You know, uh, it, it's it's you know, it's Gandhi, it's Martin Luther King, it's JFK, it's many others that I could go through the list and who are, who are always the ones who are being taken out. And after a while, you, you have to sit back and say, you know, well, there's also really, really bad guys who were in power who don't get assassinated. And it almost feels like there's intent in there somewhere. Right? There's a reason why it's always the good guys who get assassinated, uh, to, to prevent us from getting past the point where we are trying to advance ourselves and, and actually achieve something. So, okay, well, who is who is that? What is that force? What is that tidal force that is causing that to happen? And that led me to the the, the story about Asmodee and where this takes us.
0: And Joe, before I forget, too a thought as you were speaking about pre cap Steve Rogers. And I I hear it almost every year when it comes about that. I think it was in 1936 time magazine person of the year was Adolf Hitler. Is that something that could have, or it was irrelevant to possibly include in the storytelling that you're doing with this new cap title.
2: I'm not concluding (laughs) that particular moment, but that is emblematic of of the problem that we were having at that time. And, there are always going to be those who like the strongmen, those who say, you know, this is a powerful person, we should follow that person. And that tends not to go well, as, as the Hitlers and the Jim, you know, Jim Joneses of the world have shown us. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to, to counterpoint that. And in, uh, in a way, you know, looking at the past to sort of inform the present a little bit in, in, in terms of some current events. So... Um, yeah, it's all about really focusing on how does Steve you know, react as, as, a, as a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid? You know, he's not going to be able to do a whole lot against them, nor is it that the right time to do that. So he heckles them. At one, at one point, the second issue very early on, uh, which will be coming out about the same time this podcast, I imagine, comes out. Um, we pick up right where we left off, and he's trying. The guy who's speaking, and, and Steve is heckling this guy and, and saying, well, "What about this? Well, it, well the concentration camps, well, you know." We'll listen to him. And at one point, two of the other American Nazi, the Boon members pull Steve aside, like, "Who do you think you are?" You know, giving this great man a hard time. And he says, "What? First time in Brooklyn?" And, <laughs> and right, right after we cut to a scene in the park. Right after, you know. 20 feet down the road, there's a guy, a guy sitting in the park reading a paper, and Steve walks by, and you see there's been a fight. He's up bladed up, and, you know, his clothes are torn, and the guy says, uh, you okay? You've been in a fight? And Steve says, you should see the other guys. He looks back, and they're just spying. They're just wiping their hands, you know, and the guy says, I don't think this is going the way you think it's going, and Steve says, give me time. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow, I like that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, Pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice, or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else,
1: we thank you for your continued support. And, you know, one of the things that this issue, at the very end, we have a preview for what is the next issue, and the, you know, big thing is, it's a return for you for a character that you haven't touched in a while, and that's everyone's favorite webhead, the amazing Spider-Man. And... To see this happen, you know, you return, you know, even just in a small little moment like this. What is it like to return to a character who you have such a storied past with? And again, in my opinion, a highly fantastic and acclaimed
2: run. It's a lot of fun, and certainly that voice is very familiar to me, and I like it a great deal. And um, we've seen that relationship with him and. and Captain America. Elsewhere, the whole um, uh, "No, you move" speech happened in a conversation with um, uh, Peter and, and and Cap. And Cap's always about to see beyond, you know, the obvious about about Peter. When uh, during the big airport scene, uh, when um, they're all fighting, you know, to, to protect Doctor Doom, uh, at the end of the fight, you know, Spidey introduces. Starts talking to MJ, who says, "You never introduced me to your friends." Yeah and and he brings you know her over to to meet cap and doesn't introduce her as his girlfriend just says this is a friend and cap sees through immediately and gives him some really good advice on how to keep this relationship going so they've always had this kind of odd friendship and and in the uh, next issue uh spidey shows up to um uh, ask a favor of him and just having the opportunity to write that voice again write that character again uh, it's a lot, it was it's not a long scene, but it's a fun scene, and it was so much fun to do it. And when it comes to how you
1: write Spider Man, one of the biggest things about the character for myself, especially you know, as someone who's been reading through all of the Spider Man as of this recording on September twenty seventh, I am officially on Spider Man five fifteen. But I digress. Uh, one of the things about that is how you write the dialogue and how natural and free flowing it is. It feels like like actual conversation. And I would imagine this is something that you got from your years in working in television as well.
2: Yeah. If you write a scene correctly for television or film, um, if the actors were off off stage rehearsing and they were having this right, saying the dialogue, when someone walking by would just think they're having a conversation. They wouldn't know they were acting they would just think it's a conversation. So you learn to write very conversationally. And it also helps that, you know, I'm a street rat. I, I come out of Jersey uh i i lived in you know the worst possible circumstances growing up so i know what that street attitude is i i lived that street attitude for a long time and so it's always you know i i i can be that myself when i want to be so it, it wasn't much of a stretch for me to know okay i know who this guy is i went to school with this guy i am that guy and just just write it the way you would say it on the street and when it comes to
1: writing natural-sounding dialogue, what do you feel is like the biggest misconception that a novice writer has with constructing, quote-unquote, natural-sounding dialogue?
2: There's this notion a lot of new writers have that uh, you must somehow sound literary. You must, um, you know... And, and it's it's fine on the page sometimes, but not not when you say it out loud. And what writing is, ultimately... Uh, here's here's the big secret, folks. It is speaking on the page in your own natural voice. No more, no less. Writers, write they would talk. They talk the way they write. And once you learn, there's this is great story about Isaac Asimov, who was in, the early in his career and having a hard time with this very thing, making the dialogue sound naturalistic. And he was talking to his, his agent over lunch and expressing this concern. And the agent said, you know, did do you, do you know how, how Hemingway would write The Sun Rose in the Morning? was very excited. Said, How? How How do you write that? He said, the sun rose in the morning. You just say it. And once you realize you don't have to try and be literary, you don't have to try and be pretty, you don't have to try and be precious about it, then suddenly the, 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 the chains come off and you just write as, in your
1: own natural voice. One thing, though, I've, you know, I've always wondered about is like when you have multiple characters of different, quote unquote, voices, like when you write Mary Jane Watson and when you write Peter Parker, they have two completely different voices. But yet they're, you know, they still have that sense of natural flowingness to them. You know what I mean? Like, how do you like what what do you write in like terms of like little characteristics to help create that voice for that one individual character?
2: Well for me as a writer it helps that when, I, when I'm writing I'm not actually writing the story I set, I get to know the characters so well that whatever I drop them into I just watch what they do and I write it down so I know Mary Jane as a person and 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 she speaks it in her way and I just write it down um for for new writers who aren't you know quite there yet here's a here's a cheat for you I always hate to say this, but um, I, I, I sometimes tell new writers who have a hard time making their characters sound different from each other. Here's what you can do. Uh, when you write your, your story or your script or your novel, uh, use the names of the movie actors that you know really well. You know, uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, Tilda Swinton, um, Tom Cruise, all those voices, you know, are Henry Fonda, are very, very different from each other. So use in you know, your as you're writing Henry father, and your 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 brain will automatically correct it to how that how that actor tends to speak most of the time. Then when you're done, do global search and replace and change the characters of names, and all of a sudden everyone will sound very different from each other. But for me, it's just a matter of getting to know them and listening to what they say and then just writing it down.
1: Now, when it comes to writing Captain America at this moment. What is the biggest takeaway you've gotten from discovering who this character is?
2: I think it's it's the strength of the character, but not in you know the obvious sort of way. Um, one thing that really hasn't been dealt with much is, and we've seen this in the movies as well, um, his sense of humor. Uh, and I want to sort of bring it out a little bit more. As people when they think of Cap don't necessarily think of, of a sense of humor, um, but it is there and it's been there in flashes. So I want to pull some of that out. It's his basic decency as a human being. Um, it just reaffirms everything that I believe about the character. And uh, my job now is to take those elements that others have got who've gone before me really refined and build it out and and really bring those into the foreground. Uh, I do feel that in the last number of years, he's been treated almost more as, as a symbol than a human being that, that's when you lose you lose focus on the character they see the the shield they see the star and he becomes just a means to an end and it becomes a symbol and my focus is on okay, who is the guy behind all that and uh I'm enjoying I'm, I'm enjoying the journey enormously
0: well quickly on that note too and it's a it's kind of a segue over to the MCU and what you said before Joe about asking questions no one's asked somebody in our local comic book store happened to say he would not mind seeing a series whether it doesn't have to be a full-fledged movie of what happened in avengers endgame when cap returned the stones can we see him getting some of that life you know with peggy and stuff that's what that reminded me of as well
2: yeah that question is way beyond my pay rate that's a that's a kevin Peggy question
0: But I think a valid one in respect to, you know, uh, along the line of the thought of asking questions no one's asked. Can we see, can we get to see that? Maybe it's down the pike. It's just, I'm just throwing it out there.
2: Oh, I see. Um, Yeah. uh, I don't see a reason why that that could never be done. Uh, Whether it's done with me or somebody else, I think it's a a good area to explore.
1: One thing with, you know, the story so far from you that I do appreciate, like I said, is the. Right. What was he like before he became Captain America? What were his, you know, struggles going on at the time? And one thing I would actually love to personally see, you know, whether it's you that does this or someone else, but just the idea of how did the people around him react after he disappeared and where, you know what I mean? Like, I love that idea of, again, the unanswered questions and where, because these people, like, they may be the quote unquote ancillary characters, but, you know, to him, they were his world and, To lose part of their world would be an interesting thing to see
2: i I agree and there's there's areas certainly to explore there and to the first part of your question i think that it's so important to understand the the man or the the human being that steve was before he got the power because you know why did he why was he the right person at the right time i have this this theory that money and power make you more of what you were in the first place If you were a nice person before you got money and power, you're a nicer person after. If you're a jerk before money and power, you're a bigger jerk after you get money and power. So what circumstances made Steve exactly the right person to get the Super Soldier Serum? And that's what I'm trying to explore with this story, is the serum made him the hero that he became, but what made him the man that he became? And that's what I'm I'm gonna delve into here he's a hero, but you
1: show the human side of him. And like, again, I love how you're hammering that home with the actual human side of Steve Rogers. And I feel this is something that is very much needed for the character of Captain America, because you can only tell so many stories about him in the current tense, you know, with where he is now. How many times can he, you know, beat up the Red Skull or Baron Zemo or etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But I like seeing that human part because it's kind of funny. I'll read a biography and I will be bored beyond a shadow of a doubt with, uh, you know, the this guy was a writer and this was him as a baby and this and that. But I like with Captain America, you're seeing the early elements because of the fact you're seeing where those core values originated from and i love seeing that and you know you mentioning by the way again you know that fight he had when he was younger and the guys are you know behind like not a scratch on him i love knowing that because you see the elements of who steve rogers is in that moment
2: exactly and there's this notion very often that what can i do um i'm not steve rogers i'm not spider-man um what can one person do against Overwhelming odds and in the course of the story There's a a situation that Steve finds himself involved in as a as a young kid without powers sickly, trying to survive that says From the narrative point of view You don't have to have superpowers to fight against wrong to fight against Tyranny and fascism and and the destruction of the human spirit Uh, you, You can be an ordinary person, but still take a stand and that's you know i think a lesson that we all have to understand that you know because we feel powerless we don't have to you know step aside and and say oh i can't change anything watch you can if you're not if you're not changing the future then who the heck is
0: joe one of the things we usually first ask guests on the show we didn't get to ask you this time around and i wanted to find out if no one else um where did it start for you in terms of comics if you recall how old you were what year was it what titles did you start picking up and reading
2: yeah it, it's it's semi-autobiography but it, the, the 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 short version of it is um I, I grew up um we moved every six to eight months uh from different towns different cities different states because my father had a unique economic philosophy blowing the town went up a lot of bills and split so guys <clears> that you know, badges and bills would show up in the morning. That night, the U-Haul backs up. It goes somewhere else, from New Jersey to California, to Texas, to Illinois. And we were driving back um, from California. We've been there for like you know, different different cities and towns for a couple of years. Back to New Jersey again. And I was maybe about like eleven or twelve, and driving through the, the the desert in the heat of summer. And we pulled over to get gas and we're just dying in this car and the guy who was um ran the gas station saw it took pity on us and um at one point he's he put, as we're getting ready to go he hands to be this stack of comics that you know his nephew left behind back then comics were looked at as disposable literature yep. he was just going to throw them out and um so this is this, this you know six inch high stack of comics and it was you know it was you know Silly ones, you know, Casper and, and, and the other ones, but also, you know, Superman, World's Finest, Batman, Green Lantern, all this stuff. And I had not never been exposed to comics before. And on the road back from, you know, wherever the hell this was, middle of the country to New Jersey, by the time we got back to Jersey, I had read those books at least 10 times each and fallen in love. And that, at that moment, I became a comics collector. And to maybe put it in
0: time to time reference, the comic book cover price was twenty cents, fifteen cents, ten cents.
2: There we no, go. I'm wrong. Excuse me, it was twelve cents, About oh. fifteen cents, a little bit. So it was twelve cents. Mm-hmm. Isn't it funny?
1: You can put a timestamp on the cost of a comic, and you yeah. know immediately what era that's from. Yep, yep. It's so wild to realize that. Yeah, like, bronze 99?
0: and copper and stuff like that get me, but the the price I can get more fixated on. <laughs>
1: so now it was in, a very different world
0: no from many things that you've done before i'm not sure how much of this time is taking you to do the new cap run the uh, first arc you said six issues i i assume this is first of all going to be ongoing but what other kind of things you you when you are getting back into horror any other stuff
2: o- outside marvel i mean yeah oh um yeah well first off they are correct uh they want, you know, I want to be on cap for a while. So this will be a, a monthly situation for me uh, until I begin to suck. And then, you know, all, all bets are off. <laughs> um, I'm in the process of uh, working on a new novel right now. I've got um, new uh, one book coming out in, in January called The Glass Box. I'm taking over the I'm taking over the Harlan Ellison estate situation. So I'm getting all of his books back in the print. So there's, there's a lot going on these days. Mm-hmm. Now, as a uh,
1: novelist and a comic book writer, what is one thing you've learned from comics that you've incorporated in your novel writing and the vice versa, comics into your novel writing?
2: I never really look at them as different things. People often say, you know, are, are how do you write differently for comics than novels or for screenplays? And I really don't. It really is just a question of, like I said before, getting to know the characters and letting them drive the story. Um, you know, here's, here's the secret. Here's the other secret. Um... Imagine for a second your best friend walking across the the living room at night, the the lights are off, and they bang the shit on the coffee table. Now, you know your friend, you know exactly what your friend's going to say, how they're going to react when that happens. Writing is so different. You get to know the characters well enough that whatever you, again, drop them into, your job is to sit down and write what they say. So whether it's a comic or a novel or a screenplay, um, what I do is I park myself behind the keyboard, and I open up a window into that environment, and when I can focus well enough to see who's in there, I just set them in motion and watch what they do. And sometimes it's it's, a, it's the damnedest things they come up with, either I, what I've anticipated. There's stuff that happens in my in my stories that I didn't plan, I wasn't thinking about, and the characters just said it, or that, that part of my brain that was being that character for moments of of for purposes of the writing. And where the hell did that come from? I, I have I have no idea where this stuff comes from, and. That's the same process for whether it's a, a movie, a TV show, a comic, a novel, whatever. Um, the characters drive. I'm just, I'm just transcribing it all.
0: J. Michael Straczynski, author of the new Captain America series or Legacy 751, if you prefer. Cover price, five ninety
2: nine. Oh, 99 Great Eddie, Eddie.
0: start to this run, and we hope it goes as long as you want it to. I
2: think, I think that was the higher price of the first issue only because it was a 30-page issue. A 30 page issue. But um, I think the regular ones are at the regular price. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Much fun to be here
1: and good luck to you guys. I was going to ask one more question just pertaining to Captain America number one, if you don't mind. it First. is In regards to the uh, the covers, because like when a Marvel book comes out, you get a plethora of uh, different variant covers. You got Frank the Tank Miller on there. You got, you know, the interior artist doing a cover as well. And just there's Oh, so much you know that you get with a number one any particular favorites of yours you know for that number
2: one that you've seen oh god gosh um well what's fun about the first issue and then and the uh, variant covers is i work with a lot of those writers uh, artists before you know Olivier Coipel and JRJR and and others and you know seeing you know frank miller in there and seeing all the others it's like, it's like a murderer's row and how do how do you pick out which one is the best or your favorite They're, they're they're all astonishing. Of course, Jesus is covered, which started the whole process going. Uh, it's also glorious. So no, I'm, I'm just a lucky guy. I, I I fanboyed out all over the place when I saw those covers covers coming in.
1: You got a Frank Miller variant on your number one for a comic. How cool is that?
2: It's sometimes you think, you know, did I wake up in someone else's life? And if I did, are they going to want it back? Um, I'm a lucky guy.
1: So actually, it's uh, me. I'm supposed to technically be J. Michael Straczynski. So uh, if you could, just, you know, we'll figure this out. We'll coordinate.
2: Uh, I can give you my attorney.
1: My my attorney will be in touch with you. All righty, We'll see what we can do.
0: I'm in the dark again about this whole thing. I mean, you
1: you can get every other weekend, Eddie.
0: We'll talk about it.
1: All righty. So to the wife. (laughs) For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I
2: am J. Michael Straczynski.
0: And I'm Eddie Wilson, Excelsior.